Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It's hard to believe this is where we are now. Um, my name is Amy Winkle. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I am the priest in charge uh, while Jenny, our interim rector, is on maternity leave. So I continue to just be so blessed to be here with you um, in this community. And we um, get to, to move into a new season together. And so um, I look forward to kind of seeing what the Lord has for us as we move into Epiphany. So, um, as you know, we've been in Advent for a few weeks leading up to Christmas, then we had our 12 days of Christmas, and then with, uh, on Friday, January 6th, started Epiphany. So, we had, the Feast of Epiphany was on the 6th, and so now, um, until we move into Lent, we are living into this um, idea of Epiphany, this idea of the revelation of Christ. And as we do that, we are intentionally looking outward and thinking about um, our mission as the church, what it means for us to be Christ's followers, what it means to be the ones who have prepared through the time of Advent um, for Christ's coming and then receiving his coming in Christmas. So then an Advent, I mean, so, excuse me, then an epiphany that we are able to um, be witnesses to this revelation of Christ in the world. And so we as the church get to participate with God in this revelation of Jesus to the world, to be his witnesses to who he is. And this looks, um, th this can work itself out into to different ways. There are different practices that we can, can live into into this season that helps us be part of this witness um, to the revelation of Christ. We can do this through in our homes and also in our work, um, workspaces and our vocations. So th therefore, during Epiphany, we can engage in something called a house blessing, um, in which we pray for God to be re revealed in and through our homes. Um, and so we can dedicate that space as holy and filled with the presence of the Lord. We actually got to, to do a house blessing on Friday at John Michael's house. He just moved into a new house. And so the youth were there, and we all gathered together um, and, and walked through this liturgy together. And it was so beautiful. It was such a great time just to get to dedicate that space to the Lord and the people who live in that space to say, we want, to, we want our home to reveal um, who Christ is. And so if you are interested in that liturgy, um, just feel free to email me, and I'll be glad to send it to you if, if that's something that you would like to do in your own home. Um, I would be glad to share that with you. In addition, um, at the end of, of our services during Epiphany, kind of a way of, of benediction and of sending out, we will be praying over various vocations. And those of you who are living out your work in certain vocations will have you stand so that we can pray over you and send you out into the world um, to live out your mission and the mission that we've been called to as the church um, through the work that, that God has given us to do and as a way of revealing Christ to others. And it's a way that we get to engage um, in this season. So we look forward to these coming weeks as we remember that we are on mission with Jesus being witnesses to the light and the healing and the freedom that has come into the world through him. So that's a little bit of an overview of our, our season of Epiphany. Now let's turn our attention to the biblical text. So for Epiphany, we are going to be in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, last, last week, John Michael started us off in Matthew with his sermon um, on the, around the, the Magi and King Herod. So if you haven't had a chance to hear his sermon, I would encourage you to go, uh, go back and listen to it this week um, as a way of kind of jumping into the, to the Gospel. So a few things I want to say about Matthew as an overview. Um, 
all of the Gospels um, are concerned with kind of making the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we see this particularly, um, a particular attention to that in the book of Matthew. The sense of saying, like, here's the way that God has been revealing himself through the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And now here comes Jesus as the fulfillment of that, that revelation. It begins right at the beginning of the book. Matthew 1 starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes all, it takes us all the way back to Abraham and works us up into the time of Jesus to say, this is not a new story that we're telling. This is a, a continuation of what God has been doing throughout time. And Jesus is um, the revelation of that. And so, that, so that's a big part of Matthew's gospel, that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. And also that Jesus is the embodiment of who Israel has, was meant to be, who they were called to be. So, but even though, so even though like this is a big part of the, of the book of Matthew, he also starts to broaden the perspective a little bit. He also wants to emphasize that this gospel and the revelation of Jesus is not just for Israel, but also for all people, for Jews and for Gentiles, that through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has been made manifest to all people. And so one of the main emphases of this in Matthew is that is this, he looks at, at, at and kind of lays out for us what it means and what it looks like to follow Christ and to live as citizens of heaven. So if we remember from our study of Isaiah during Advent, um, God kept reminding Israel through the prophet Isaiah that they were the people of God, that they were meant to live in a covenant relationship with God and with each other. And so what Matthew shows us is that the fulfillment of that call to live in covenant relationship with God and with each other is completed through Jesus, who shows us what it means to live as citizens of heaven and that we are called to follow him in that reality. And so it's kind of with this context around Matthew that we're going to jump into the text today. We're reading from Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. So we'll read those together. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that, go, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So this part of the text is setting the stage for the ministry of Jesus through the witness of John the Baptist. So John is telling them that the kingdom of God has come near. And us as readers know that this is true because Jesus has actually already been born. So for those who are like coming to the wilderness, they don't, they haven't met Jesus yet. They don't know that the Messiah is among them. And yet we know that when, when John is saying the kingdom of heaven has come near, that Jesus is actually already on the scene, that God is already embodied in flesh and blood and living among them, even though they don't even know it yet. So there are a few things about this idea of the kingdom coming near that I think, out, I think are playing out in, in this text. And the first thing is that the kingdom coming near means that God has made the first move, that Jesus is already here. And so the question for them is how they're going to respond to it. And what we see from the text is that the most appropriate response that John points to is repentance, for them to turn around, to change direction, and to confess sins. Much like we heard in the voice of Isaiah the prophet, here is another prophetic voice saying, repent, turn, admit where we're not living like the people of God. So over the last, couple, the last year or so, um, I've been working through this book about the Ignatian exercises. And St. Ignatius was a dude who lived a long time ago, um, who set out these exercises like to help us really like kind of encounter Jesus in the scriptures, like a walk with him, um, encounter him like face-to-face in the scriptures. And one of the things that's been most profound to me in this, this thing that I've been doing this last, last year or so is that the, there's this um, preparatory thing that you, that you do before you ever go to the scriptures themselves. Before you ever encounter Jesus in the scriptures themselves, there's a sense of preparing in the sense of turning ourselves a pro, it even says a profound turning of ourselves, the core of ourselves, turning that toward Jesus, toward the Lord, and submitting to him. And that, that's what I think this means to be ready to receive, like what it is that God wants to do in our midst. Because I think sometimes when we hear like the idea of repenting or turning toward the Lord, we get, get this idea of kind of white-knuckling white it, like I'm going to do this and I'm going to change myself. But what I love about this idea of like turning toward the Lord and submitting to him is this idea of laying ourselves before the Lord, turning ourselves toward him and letting him decide how he's going to mold and shape us and how he's going to do the things that we cannot do for ourselves. Because the reality is, is that our formation is really up to God. He's the one that knows what needs to be changed in us. He's the one that knows what needs to be molded and, and, and redone in our lives. And so instead of us trying to figure out what those things are all the time, maybe the invitation is just to turn toward him to have a recognition that the kingdom of God has already come near, that he has taken the first step toward us, and then all we have to do is to turn and to lay ourselves before him and say, do whatever it is that you want to do in my life, God. I'm here. I'm open, I'm willing to have you work in and through me however you see fit. And that's what this call from John sounds like, I think, to the people, asking them to come and to, and to repent, is to put themselves before the Lord and let him do the work that he wants to do. Secondly, in this text, I think this idea of the kingdom of, of heaven coming near um, works itself out in the fact that it, uh, it affects all people. That it's not just a message for the Jews, 
but for the Gentiles as well. And so we see evidence of this of a couple places within this text. The first being that um, John is calling them to this idea of baptism with water. Now, this is a purification act, a means of cleansing. But what's interesting is that this was usually um, a rite and a passage, a practice that the Gentile converts would go through, not Jews themselves. So it was one of the two Gentiles who had decided that they wanted to convert um, into the Jewish faith are the ones who would go through this practice of baptism. So it's interesting that here John is calling the Jews to do it as well. And that it's putting the Jews and the Gentiles on this kind of level playing field to say, we both need to go through this. We both need to come and be purified, be cleansed before the Lord. Secondly, John makes the point to say that being close to God does not come about by being ancestors of Abraham. That it's not about lineage. Um, Instead, it's that God can include whoever he chooses. And so we see, like, in his discussion with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, him saying, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestors. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And so we see this sense of, like, this letting go of this presumption of just, like, my lineage, where I come from, puts me in some kind of standing with the Lord. Instead, John is saying, No, God gets to choose who comes near to him. And he can choose as he, as he wants. Therefore, the coming of Jesus has proven that God wants to draw all people to himself. Not just Israel, but the Gentiles as well. And then thirdly, I think in this text, there's this idea of the kingdom of God coming near. And when it comes near, it brings this sense of clarity in the midst of ambiguity. That John reveals and points to Christ because he's very clear of who Christ is and who he, John, is not, right? Like, he's, he's very clear of what he's been called to do and what he's not, that there's this one who is more powerful than he is that's coming after him, and he's not even, like, able to hold his sandals. And yet he knows very clearly that he's meant to, to have a message of repentance. John also seems very clear of the intentions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, mainly because of their fruit, that they are um, that they're not as concerned with turning themselves to the Lord and letting the Lord kind of shake shake things up and reveal new things to them of who He is, um, but instead they're kind of like holding on to that presumption, like we talked about, of what the of um, who God is and and what it means to be the ancestor of Abraham. What I think we see in this kind of dichotomy between John and the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that John is not trying to draw attention to himself, but instead to the one who's coming after him. And by, by being willing to kind of like shift the perspective from him to this one that's coming, what we see is that, that this leads people to come and confess their sins so that they may draw near to God, that people are coming in response to what he has to say. That he's like, it's not about me, it's about this other one that's coming, so come join me in what I'm doing. Come join me in preparing the way. But the issue with the Pharisees and Sadducees is that they're seemingly religious acts, them like living out this life, doing what they um, think is the right thing to do, maybe, um, are are pointing to themselves in in such a way that it becomes exclusive and therefore not drawing people to God. And therefore then not producing the fruit that leads to repentance, as, as John calls out to them. 
And so we see kind of this, this dichotomy in some ways, this like distinction between the two of what, what they're called to do. Is, is there, they're like trying to live out this faith about calling attention to the Lord, like, like the reflection goes to God through us, or is it that it becomes about them to be able to live in this way where um, the, the attention comes to them rather than to the Lord? The other thing I think John has clarity about is what Jesus is coming to do. And we see this kind of this image that he lays out here about Jesus with his winnowing fork, right? This winnowing fork that's in his hand that separates the wheat from the chaff. So what happens with the winnowing fork is it like it goes into the, to the, the harvest, into the wheat, that, is, that needs to be separated. And so what, what the winnowing fork does is it throws the wheat up into the air. And as it comes down, the wheat that is the heavier part, the more substantial part, the good part, falls to the ground and then can be gathered up and stored. But the chaff that is connected to it, when it's thrown up into the air, the chaff gets blown away by the wind because it's, it's not usable. It's not helpful. Um, and there's a sense of it being like sent away by the wind, blown, um, blown away. And so then what is the good and the, and the more substantial thing is, is, is left, and that which is perishing, that which is withering, is blown away. So I think there are like two ways to think about this, this imagery um, of Jesus and his winnowing fork. One of them is, a, is personally, for us in our personal lives, in the sense that Jesus can, um, can throw the things up in our lives, so to speak, and separate them out so that the good things, the weighty things, the things that matter, stay. And then the chaff, the things that need to be burned away, um, are blown away. Um, it was interesting. Uh, I had someone after the first service who gave me an image about that. She said the image that she saw in her mind when we were talking about Jesus with the winnowing fork was kind of like a parent with a child and throwing the child up into the air. Um, but you know that the child is going to be caught, right? That there's a sense of like us being thrown up into the air and, and God being able to get rid of the things that we don't need and yet we know that he's a loving parent that's going to catch us. I thought that was such a beautiful image. The other way um, to think about this idea of Jesus with his winnowing fork is this idea of the day of judgment, of the time that's coming when Jesus will come return to us and he will um, separate out evil from good that he, he will like be, bring justice and set all things right within our world and that evil will be done away with and what is good and what is pleasing and it, it will be eternal. Um, and so that is another way to think about this text as well. And, I, and actually we see this, um, this vision of God with the winnowing fork in the Old Testament prophets. It's another way that um, kind of this image of God is that he can come and separate out um, the good from evil. And so it's interesting that John uses it here for Jesus, that he's pointing to Jesus and saying, remember how the prophet has already talked about God in these kind of terms, and now Jesus is here to do the same thing. Now, I have to be honest with you about this text. I find it very challenging. And, I, and I, really there's a lot to say about it um, that we don't have to, um, time to unpack. But as I've been sitting with it this week, like I found myself really wrestling with it. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I think part of it is because I come from a, a tradition um, that I grew up in that would use this idea of, like, eternal fire, um, this idea of hell, 
as a manipulative tool and a way to kind of like say who's in and who's out. And so sometimes when I come to these texts where we start talking about like, you know, the unquenchable fire, I can sort of feel myself like tensing up a little bit. Not because I don't believe in the reality of hell. Not that I don't believe that there is a day of judgment that's coming when Jesus will, turn, will return and set all things right and separate the wheat from the chaff. But I think it's because of the way that that idea has been used um, that I kind of have to wrestle with it. And so I, can, I believe it, and yet I don't believe it's meant to be a tool, a manipulative tool to, like, scare us into heaven. Um, I don't think that's what it is. I think it is telling us about a reality that we need to be aware of. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, uh, the other part of my wrestling has been this um, sense of clarity or certainty in the midst of ambiguity. And I feel challenged by that, um, by John, that he seems to have such a sense of certainty. And, and again, I think because of like that whole, like my experience of that certainty around who's in and who's out, when I look at the certainty that I see in John, I feel nervous by it. Like, boy, like he's, you know, calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees brood of vipers. Like that's not, you know, those aren't easy words. Um, and so when I look at him and say like, man, he, he has a sense of clarity that I don't have a lot of the time. That things feel a lot more ambiguous than clear to me most times. But when I step back from this text, I see that it's not so much that John has certainty like in all things, but there are specific things that he feels certain about. And that, um, and that maybe that's kind of what epiphany is for us, this revelation of telling us these are the things that we can feel certain about, even in the midst of a lot of ambiguity. That, there's, that we can bring clarity to the things that are most important. And here's what I think those things are. That we can feel a sense of certainty or clarity around the fact that God has made the first move and draws near to us. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to wonder if that's actually the case. We know it for certain that that is true. That there's a sense of clarity or in certainty that this gospel message is for all people who want to receive it, that it's not exclusive or something that needs to be held back, but that Jesus has come for all, Jews and Gentiles, and that we can have a sense of clarity or certainty of who Jesus is and who we are not, and that it is Jesus who determines what stays and what goes, and that our calling is to point to him with certainty more than anything else, that we can look and say, I'm certain about Jesus, <laughs> even when a lot of other things feel uncertain or ambiguous. Now, there's a word for this type of, like, way of being, so to speak, as, as far as, like, our certainty around things. I had a professor in, in seminary who called it epistemological humility. So there you go. That's your vocab word for the day. Epistemology being the things that we know, um, so to have epistemological humility means I know the things that I know as best as I can, and yet I hold them with open hands. That there are definitely these things that I am certain about. I'm certain about Jesus. I'm certain about who he is, what he's been called to do, and how he's calling us to point to him. Those things feel very certain. 
And there are other things that I might feel certain about as well, but I hold those with open hands and allow the Lord to change my mind if he needs to, to stay open about it and not feel like there has to be a sense of certainty in certain, in, in other ways. And that's where, like, I can kind of be in these texts and kind of exhale a little bit, if that makes sense, to be like, okay, these are the things I know. I know you are Lord. I know that you have come toward us and that you have provided a way for us to be in relationship with you. That's what I know for sure. And the rest I hold open-handedly before the Lord. So I wonder for you, like, where are the places where you need God to reveal himself even more to you, more of who he is in spirit and in truth, that we're willing to kind of let him expand our understanding of who he is and not feel like we have to hold tightly onto these things that we think we know to be sure. So during this season of Epiphany, I pray that Jesus would come into focus for us in a fresh way, that we would see him as he truly is, and that the eternal, the weighty things that really matter would be the things that take hold in us, while the things of this world that are fleeting would be the things that get blown away. And so let's pray that for each other and together in this Epiphany season. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you that, that you have come near us. And we thank you, God, that we are able to point to you to say, I know you to be true. I know Jesus to be true. And I know Jesus to be good. That he has come toward us so that we might have relationship with God. And so, God, I pray that you would help to solidify those things that are true about you into our hearts, Lord. And that the things that need to be blown away, you would blow away. May we stay open-handed before you, God. May we allow you to form and, you to form and to shape us however you choose to, to. So that we can be your people and continue to be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.